Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Hello, everyone. I am Corey Andrew Powell, and welcome to another episode of Motivational Mondays. I'm your host again uh, on this podcast. We do it every week, and we're so happy that you are joining us once again. So I am joined today by Ritu Basin. I want to make sure I said that correctly, hopefully. And she is an authenticity advocate, inclusion expert, and social justice advocate committed to helping people live their truth and their best most empowered lives she's the author of the new book which i have here it's called we've got this the beauty of belonging and i want to say ritu welcome to motivational mondays thank you so much for having me Corey. it's a delight to be here and you got my name right oh thank you good good because i hate when i butcher names i'm so happy (laughs) i did it right and did some justice so well thank you so much for being here and i want to just start with as I was talking to you before we started recording, your personal story is so amazing. And I think people will really identify with it across all spectrums. But just to begin, I would love to talk about your book, though, We've Got This, and what the inspiration was behind that title. Oh, thank you so much for asking and for having me on. So so let's start with the book. And, and I'm going to hold it up, too, because I, it's it's new for me to have the book in my hand and it's new for me to hold it up and I'm so excited. And for those of you who are listening and not watching, just so you know, so I identify as being a brown girl in that my parents are from India. So culturally, racially, I am both South Asian, but I'm also, I, I call myself a brown girl and, and I'm holding up my new book, which is also brown. And what I've been saying is brown girl chose a brown book deliberately, <laughs> deliberately, which I'm happy to speak about as well. So I called the book, We've Got This, Unlocking the Beauty of Belonging, because one of the things that I have deeply struggled with throughout my life up until this point of transformation is experiencing acceptance for who I am, honoring, being honored for who I am, feeling like I can authentically stand in my power and reveal who I am so that I can experience belonging. It has been a lifelong struggle for me to live a life that I, where I could, can actually, could actually be who I am. And through a lot of deep self-reflection and healing work, I finally am standing in my power and feel beautiful both inside and out. And I've realized that I've got this, like I can do this. And I realized that there are practices and strategies and tools for anyone else out there who struggles to belong to make this happen. And so you've got this too. And then the final piece, and the reason why I actually called the book, We've Got This, is because I thought growing up that my feelings of being alone, feeling lonely, alienated, rejected, unworthy, it was just me. And now in doing all of the layers of work that I do, I've realized that this is a collective experience that some of us, because of our identities 
and all the difficult, hateful, uh, hurtful things that come our way, we experience this more than others, but it's a collective experience and we're in it together. And if we can commit to doing it individually and come together to help each other rise together, we've got this. And mm. so I want this to be a movement and that's why I've called it. We've got this. I love that. And that's part of why I do these conversations or have these conversations because I really want people to engage and to learn about what others may go through that they don't realize. And especially we talk a lot about the quote unquote privilege word. And uh, some people argue that doesn't exist, but there are some who are enlightened and they say, yeah, I don't go through the things you go through because there is no preconceived stigma before I walk into a room based on how I look. And so when people start to get it, I think we are better off. And that's why these conversations are very important. And I want to ask you just to delve a little bit into those feelings you said you had of like the insecurity, the, you know, not feeling adequate and all the things you mentioned. Born and raised in Canada, mm-hmm. as you mentioned to uh, uh, parents who were a uh, Sikh Punjabi family, correct? Yes. Yeah, so my parents are immigrants to Canada and I am Canadian. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm South Asian, but I'm also Canadian. And you're going to hear the Canadian and how I speak everyone. <laughs> and when I say things like out and about, out and about, out yeah. and about in Canada. <laughs> there I am out and about in Canada, everyone. Yep. And we're Punjabi by culture, which means we're North Indian and we are sick by faith. And so uh, Corey, here's something really interesting. So my faith is called Sikhism or Sikhi. I am a Sikh. Sikh, okay. And in this moment, as we are learning to decolonize language as leaders, as 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 citizens of the world, we're decolonizing as much as we can. And name pronunciation matters, as mm. you noted right at the beginning. So it's actually pronounced Sikh and Sikh, as Sikh and Sikhism and Sikhi as opposed to Sikh and Sikhism. Ah, thank you yes. for that. And here's why I tell you that's important to me. I live in a very uh, predominantly Indian uh, community in Jersey City, New Jersey. And there's a large community of Sikh. <laughs> now it feels like Sikh. we're just like- You can just say Sikh. Of Sikh, of Sikh people. Yeah, of, yes. of Sikh. Sikh. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so, and I've never, they were probably too gracious to like correct me, but I've, <laughs> I've been calling them like Sikhs for like, 20 years now. So, but thank well, you for. Like, I mean, let's be right. real, Corey. It's like we call ourselves Sikhs because we too have been living in a colonized way. Like our hearts and minds. Mind. So, India, as you know, was colonized by the British for hundreds of years, both literally, formally, and just in spirit. And we, when we come from communities that have experienced oppressive systems like colonization and imperialism, we too end up embodying impression or we can, it can live in our minds and bodies. And so if you and I had talked 10 years ago, I would have known that the correct pronunciation is sick, but I wouldn't have been in a place where I would have corrected you or anyone else because I was doing my own work around shedding the internalization of white supremacy and colonialism that lives inside of me. But this is a different moment in time. And I am a different person and I stand in my power. And now I feel good to do this. And so many times as six, we don't correct people. And that isn't because we're trying to mislead, but we ourselves are trying to navigate this world that is fraught with hate and intolerance. And so sometimes it can be challenging to find our own voice now that said, we've got this. We there is a way to make this happen. Yeah, and I will say, I, I think 
traditionally what comes to mind for me, and of course it could be exceptions to every rule, but six are very typically peaceful people, like kind of um, not in any way sort of like over- overtly aggressive as far as maybe some people may think. You like, mean like like the stereotype or the bias that that, pay, that out there that puts us into the the stereotypical category of, of being terrorists, for people, example? Yeah, people see, a, people see the headdresses and all kinds of horrible stereotypes happen. I've seen a physical assault on a man who was sick and it just tore me apart. And it was when the Persian Gulf War started and someone attacked him at a gas station and said, this is all your fault. And I'm like, you idiot. That's not even the same country like what do you talk but that kind of stuff bothers yeah. me i mean i i there's so much i can say here like so as members of the sikh faith community we are visible we are very visible like my father was a turban has a beard if you follow me on instagram you'll know for example that despite my efforts to go viral uh i'm putting up many many videos uh, there's a video of my father and his turban handing me two bright yellow plastic bags filled with indian food he made for me and that video has gone viral <laughs> you can't even see me but my sick father is going viral i love it so we're very visible, which is the point of the turban. So historically, the reason why my peoples, we wear head coverings across genders, by the way, is so that we do stand out as members of the Sikh faith. But in the US, in Canada, especially post 9-11, and in this continued world of hate and intolerance, Mm. oftentimes we are that we experience hate crimes tied back to our identities and the hate incidents and mistakenly believing that we're Muslim. Although let me tell you as a Sikh, if you are attacking us mistakenly believing that we are Muslim because your attack is geared towards Muslims, you're still hurting me because if there's injustice anywhere is an, an assault to justice uh, everywhere. And so, so it still hurts me to know that it's happening because you think I'm Muslim and I call that out too. But it's, it's, you know, it, this is the part, this is the thing about this moment in time when we as individuals who deeply care about change within our workplaces and within society at, at large, as leaders, as future leaders, this is a moment for us to really deeply take a look at our own internalized biases that we hold about who people are, whether that's their hair, religious head coverings, how they speak, what they look like, what their titles are, which school they went to, which neighborhood they live in, and so much more for all of us to interrupt our individual biases. And then, of course, to take a look at the systemic inequities that are entrenched across every system and structure in society in our workplaces in order to create environments where everyone can experience belonging. And this is what my hope that my hope is that all leadership work is rooted in these principles. Mm, yeah. Well, I love that, you know, you, that's the outcome that you hope for with this sort of exposure and these conversations, because I will tell you what's funny. I follow like five Instagram accounts of, um, sick men who the clothing, the yes, yes, style, yes. the, I'm like, I want to wear a turban because I want to yes, match, yes. <laughs> I, I want to match my bow tie and turban with my, I mean, the style, the beautiful fabrics. And, you know, what I want to do is always look at cultures and see the beauty that they are exuding and not look for things that are stereotypical or these bizarre tropes that we are all subject to. So I, li- I literally have like these, uh, Instagram accounts where I'm like, oh my gosh, that is the the men are great. Fashion is huge in my culture, and, and I'm and when I say culture, I mean stemming back to Mother India. Like we, 
as a, as a South, as Indians, as South Asians, our diaspora and back home, it's, it's, we are, we love our fabrics and, and bright colors and looking beautiful mm-hmm. and feeling beautiful is important to us because we're also the motherland of some really important traditional practices as, a, as it relates to feeling beautiful on the inside. Like I'm thinking about like yoga and mindfulness that's connected to yoga, breath work, all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's a woman who reminds me of you as well. Her name is Z Clark, also an author. And Z had a very, what she called, she said, I did the black girl version of eat, pray, love. I had a high powered job. I was had all this pressure on me, not just as a woman, as a black woman. And I just gave it all up and went to India. And then she learned breath work and she learned yes. meditation and it changed everything. So I want to talk to you about that. But before we do, I do want to ask you though, a bit more about your, your upbringing, because you do belong to this beautiful culture, but you are Canadian, um, but you have come, your nationality is, or your ethnic background is, is um, Punjabi. You have talked about not feeling sort of, I don't know if the word was like kind of comfortable in that at the time as a young person, you know, why you felt like a misfit, I think was the term that you used while you were growing up in that family. Was it more or less because of how Canadian, like a racist society in Canada made you feel? So you were apprehensive about your, about being other or what was that really for you that made you feel like a misfit? So I had a really difficult, troubled childhood in in many respects because I, my parents, when they first immigrated to Canada, this is now over 50 years ago, they moved to a very working class neighborhood, like as new immigrants to the country, they were just finding their footing. They financially struggled. And so up until the age of about 11, my siblings and I grew up in a very working class inner city neighborhood. But when we when I was around the age of 11, my parents made a decision, massive financial stretch for us to move to a very homogeneous, white, affluent suburb outside of Toronto. And they made this decision for myriad reasons, including that they wanted us to get better access to education and social networks they didn't have access to. But they also knew that as brown kids growing up in white Canadiana, it was important for us to learn how to shift cultural codes. And all of this did happen. But the problem is that I experienced years and years of relentless bullying and racist childhood bullying at that. And that was deeply traumatizing. And so at school, I was struggling to not only feel safe from harm, But I just, I didn't feel like I belonged. I just, I struggled to have friends. I, the ridicule, the torment, the harassment really had an adverse impact on my soul and spirit, my self-esteem and so much more. But then at home, I was also struggling because my parents as new immigrants to the country, they were grappling with how Indian should she be? Like, mm. how, like, let's make her really Punjabi. No, no, that's no, no, you should get out there and we're in Canada and we're going to be modern immigrants and you should embody whiteness. And then it was like, Oh wait, slow down. Who do you think you are? <laughs> the child of, like white parents. You can't talk to us that way. No, one yeah. <laughs> yeah. as if like, slow down there. Like, what do you think this is a white yeah. household? Yeah. Yeah. And like, like where you have rights, like you don't have rights, like whatever after that. And so I just, to say I, I, I was struggling both at home around who I am culturally 
but then at school with like, okay, no, I'm not brown. I'm actually white, just like you, ah, but mm. I'm not really. And I'm a smart girl who's like quite sassy and no, I'm not fancy because they, because the neighborhood I grew up in was like really affluent and they had designer clothes. And my parents, my, we were still shopping at Wilco, which existed back then. And so uh, did, you, did you have Wilco in the U.S.? It's, we didn't it's have Wilco. Walmart. No. Walmart. It's, okay. the, it's the predecessor to Walmart. Wilco in Canada turned into Walmart. Yes. Okay. Wow. Okay. So I do know the equivalency, obviously, then if you were shopping there and those girls are going to like Prada. So. Yeah, 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 <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Prada version at the time, like Benetton, which, which my parents were like, we are not going to Benetton. We are going to Walmart and you are going to get your outfit from Target. <laughs> and so... I just really struggled. And so when I say that I grew up feeling like a misfit, it was really like literally in all, every aspect of my life. The place where I think I felt the safest was, and this is going to sound so epically nerdy, but I felt the safest in studying and in my books. And, you know, even just today I was um, finishing up recording my audio book and I'm in the studio at uh, Random House in Canada at the publishers, and there's all these books around. And I was like finding myself distracted and being pulled towards the books when I like realized I, at heart, am a nerd. Like that <laughs> is like being around books and words and studying, and like that's my comfort zone because that's where I felt the safest as a kid. I could get lost in it, but it was amongst others people that I felt like a misfit. Yeah. But me and my words, thats that was a safe place. Yeah, and I think what you just laid out, you kind of were an anomaly. I mean, you had all these different sort of, as I use the term before, intersectionalities happening at yeah. once, which can be really conflicting. And you mentioned the, the code switching, which again, that's one of those things that if you're if you're not brown trying to succeed in a predominantly white society, you will never really know what that means. But we'll tell you today, if you're listening and watching that, you know, it does mean that you, you kind of, you navigate between these two different existences being sort of, um, I guess, able to, to be accepted in both worlds. So that impacts how you speak, where you might try to assimilate your language to sound more quote unquote white as they would call it. But in my case, I'm like, I'm just speaking English. I don't know why you're saying I sound white because it's the same English that white kids speak. So Every kid in America who gets out of elementary school should be speaking the same way. But so I, I grew up with that. So I understand that. But the thing is, though, no matter how much we code switch, we walk into the room and you can't code switch the exterior. Yeah, once people see us. And, you know, the intersectionality of my identity really did have a profound impact on on my upbringing, and, but also how I navigated the world. And it's like, as a woman of color, I'm cisgender and hetero. So as a woman of color from a my religious minority group, I struggled. I struggled a lot because, and not just at school. So, so Corey, as you know, uh, I ended up choosing the most high-conforming, profession to enter into <laughs> as, as, as a young woman of color in her twenties, I chose to become a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I thought at first that I would practice like more social justice focused law. But what ended up happening is I got swept up into the corporate towers because that's where all the cool kids were going. And frankly, that's where they were making more money. And I, in my twenties was making more money in my first year of working as a lawyer in the towers than my parents did combined mm. when I was growing up. And so for me, it was so enticing to be in that world of like fancy suits and high towers. And 
swish restaurants and offices with the fancy pens and I just like all of it, all of it. And the intersectional experience was really hard because the messages weren't just, okay, as someone who's not white, you should embody more white centric ways. And when I say white centric ways, I mean like more Anglo, Anglo centric ways of behaving and be more direct and, and embody more of the Anglo rooted activities of the, the corporate world, like learning how to play golf and skiing and understanding how to navigate a, a table setting at a fancy restaurant where you have like, 15 forks and yeah, 14 <laughs> forks, 13 vessels through which you can drink your beverages, <laughs> let alone ordering from a wine list. Like I was like, I don't know. I, I'm so sorry. Like my people eat, we eat with our hands. <laughs> like, like that's like, I grew up eating with my hands. Like literally 2 billion of us in the South Asian re- region eat with our hands, like whatever. So, so I just like, it was, there was that, but there was also the, Oh, as a woman, uh, no one said to me, okay, as a woman, to get ahead, you should act more like a man. But the messages were always there. It was like, talk about sports or be more direct or be more gritty and ask for what you want, be more assertive. And with the double binds of bias as a woman, if we're too assertive, then it's like, oh, she's abrasive and bitchy. Mm-hmm. And then if you're, if you don't ask, then it's like, oh, she's hesitant and timid and mousy. And so I struggled with that. I struggled with growing up, like in a really working class immigrant household where it's like, we didn't go to fancy restaurants growing up and we didn't have like summer houses or lake houses and all of that that we went to and, or the opera and like, just like the the things that I felt the pressure to hide about myself, to mask about, or for that matter, the pressure to learn about just enough so that I can navigate conversations to be like, to fit in. And by the way, for those of you who are listening and not watching, I'm doing air quotes on fit in. And when I say fit in, I'm talking about the, (sighs) our experience of changing who we are in order to have the doors of acceptance open, but fitting in is not the same as actual belonging Mm. because belonging happens when we are accepted and honored for who we really are. Fitting in is about, let me change this about myself and mask this aspect of my identity. And in fact, I call it performing. When I say performing, I don't mean like high performance. I mean, life is a stage and we're actors on the stage acting out this persona of who we are. I felt constant pressure to show up as my performing self at work because of all of my intersectional identities. And it helped because the doors did open and I did become successful at a very young age. But the problem is it wasn't on the basis of who I am. And so while on paper, I was successful on the outside looking in, you would have said, wow, when I, by the time I got to my early thirties, wow, she's really got it going on. Mm. But if you asked me in my early thirties, how I felt in my soul, I would have said to you, I felt spiritually vacant and lost and confused and frankly, broken about who I was. Yeah. Wow. And I think, you know, and that leads me up to my next question, which you actually answered because my next question was going to be, I know that on the outside looking in, it looked like you had everything, but you had this profound unhappiness at that time, but you did, you just shared why that was. And I know that, you know, things change for you when you sort of finally have this epiphany, I guess, or you make this decision to, uh, to change. Now, was the decision like, I'm going to India to clear my head or was like, I'm just getting out of here, going someplace. And it happened to be India. And then you had this profound sort of change in, in how you viewed yourself and, and your self-reflection. 
Yeah. So, so just to catch listeners up on a little bit of my story. So there I was practicing law for a few years and then transitioning. I hated the practice of law for myriad reasons, which I talk about online. You can check it out. And then I transitioned to doing HR at a large Canadian law firm in the towers. And I did that for many years. And while I was, uh, that journey in the legal profession was about 10 years, uh, into my early thirties, like to mid thirties, really successful, but unhappy. There were a few things that happened to me that signaled Ritu, the scene, you have got to transform your life. First of all, I just, I was working nonstop. I was struggling in relationships in that I was struggling. I wanted to be partnered like as a woman, I was your typical woman in her thirties who's internalized the messaging that you must find a partner and settle down and mate. And so I felt the pressure to do that. I was struggling with drawing boundaries with my parents. I didn't really love what I was doing at work, but I was making a lot of money and I thought this is the right thing to do. And, but in my mind, I just had these negative narratives constantly looping and I was trying to do, I was doing therapy and I was doing some healing work, but it just wasn't getting me to where I needed to be. And I was overriding. I was ignoring a lot of the physical signals in my body that I was really stressed and unhappy until I started to have severe back pain. So I, I was not sleeping well. I was clenching, I clenched, was clenching my teeth so tight at night. I cracked a tooth. Mm. My hair stopped growing. I was having all kinds of stomach issues in my early thirties. There I was in the corporate towers, corporate dream, but really unhappy. And then I started having excruciating back pain from sitting and stress. And Long story short, a few of my healthcare providers said, you know, you should, why don't you try yoga? Cause you seem like you're really stressed and it'll help you build, strengthen your core. And I was like, okay. And I was already thinking like, you know what? Like white people around me, all around me are doing yoga. <laughs> and my people invented yoga. Why am I not doing it? I should do it. Right. You can do it. Why can't I? I'm going to be naturally good at it because my people invented it. <laughs> on now. And so off I go to yoga class and I'm like, what in the actual F? This is really hard. Yeah, it and is. <laughs> it, it actually is. But I fell in love with it. And so I started doing it more and more and more. And when I say I started doing it more and more, like I became consumed by it in the sense that I started doing yoga retreats and I'd go on yoga vacations and I was reading about it. And then I was like, you know what? I'm so lost and confused. I need a minute from my job. I need a minute from my life. I just need a minute. Mm. And so I decided to take a sabbatical, like a leave of absence from my job in the corporate towers where I was working as an HR leader, unheard of to do this at the time, even now, because at law firms, it's like, what, you want to take a break? Why would you do that? Right, right. And as part of that sabbatical, I went to India where I studied, I did my first, I studied yoga. I did my first yoga teacher training program in an ashram for two months and spending two months away from my real life, again, I'm putting that in quotes, back home, stripped of all the labels and the identities I had embodied before I left. In this moment, in my mid-30s, where it was like, Ritu, who are you really? For two months, meditating, caring for my body, caring for my mind and spirit was ultimately the catalyst for transforming my life. And I was already on the journey to transform my life. I just, I needed something to push me into that deep place of self-reflection. But what I also needed to have happen, Corey, which did happen for me is I needed to be stripped of the personas I had created for myself. Like mm. all that 
shifting codes and all that shifting of identities basically led me to a place where in my mid thirties, if you had said to me, Ritu, who are you? I would have, would have said to you, I don't know who I am, but I have a corporate Ritu and then I have a weekend Ritu, and then I have a Saturday night on the dance floor Ritu. And then I have the Ritu who sees her parents on weekends. And then I have the Ritu who's at fam- with family friends. And then I have the Ritu who's on dates and then the Ritu who's with her friends. And then I have the miserable, lonely, sad, crying, ugly crying Ritu on Friday nights on her couch by herself with her ice cream. I didn't know there were so many personas and that experience was the catalyst to bring me to this point where I am now, where if you said, who's Ritu, I'd be able to give you a uniform answer across all of my experiences. Wow. I just got goosebumps literally from that. I mean, because I, I, it speaks to this idea of authenticity and that's why you are the authenticity expert that you are because you you've lived it. When you cannot be your full self in an environment, you are walking in, you're walking into that space self-devalued and less than because you're not being able to shine at full throttle. And so I think so many of us feel that way. And it's based on all kinds of other stuff. And we begin to internalize it and believe a lot of those negative things that I think are signals and programming that we've gotten from other people. I know you mentioned like people around you were constantly making decisions or trying to force you into decisions that you didn't want to do. And then of course you mentioned dating that didn't work out, that sort of pressure. Once you're content with self, I find none of that matters because I'm good, you know, but it takes us a while to get there. Like you had to go to India to get there, but (laughs) exactly, exactly. And in my book, I like, I talk a lot about the ashram experience and like, yeah, but you know, but, but Corey, but Corey, here, here's the thing. Here's what I've learned. Okay. We don't need to go halfway around the world and take two months off from our job and put on a uniform and study a tradition that's 8,000 years old to transform our lives. Like we can, you can start today. And so as someone who's deeply committed to authenticity and, and advocacy for being who you are, there's a few things I would say to you right away. Like step number one, if I said to you, who is your authentic self? What would you say? And by the way, in my first book, The Authenticity Principle, I define authentic, your authentic self as if there were no negative consequences for your actions, your authentic self is how you would show up in that no negative consequences. This is how you would speak. This is what you would wear. This is how you would emote. This is who you'd love. This is where you draw boundaries. This mm-hmm. is where you'd say, who you'd say no to. It's what you'd be doing for a living and so much more. So if I said to you, who is your authentic self? How would you answer that? Step one, for a lot of us, we have the answers. The, the issue is actually making that happen. I'll come back to that more in a moment. For some of us, we don't even have the answer to that. And if you don't have the answer to that because you're so lost from shifting cultural codes and curating who you are, like showing up as your performing self, the one who's acting who you are as opposed to being who you are, the real work is around figuring out who are you. And so online at RithuBasin.com, I have lots of free Empower pages which help you to self-reflect. But you can take a step back and just ask yourself things like, If there were no negative consequences, what would my voice sound like? Like, how would I speak? How would I dress at work with my family? What what would I do with my emotions? A lot of the questions I've already asked. So you literally do the deep self-reflection work around who you are. And we don't need to be at an ashram to do this. Like you can do this on your own on a Saturday afternoon or on a Friday night or whenever. 
You can do this with yourself now. Then the second thing I would say to you is that as part of our self-reflection, I'm going to encourage us to spend a lot of time with our body and our mind. Most of us actually spend quite a bit of time with our mind because we're tuning into the negative narratives. We hear the voice in the head Mm. saying all kinds of mean, evil stuff about ourselves to ourselves. One of the questions I love to ask is myself when I hear the mean stuff is what Dr. Phil used to say back in the day, how's that working for you? (laughs) And it's like, that is some mean stuff I'm saying to myself. But the place where we're spending less time on is on our bodies. Your body is a powerful anchor to help you decide what you want, how to act, how to show up in any given moment. And by tuning in, like, what is my body saying to me about how I feel about this person or this moment or this experience? We can start relying on ourselves, our inner knowledge. I call it my, I call it our core wisdom in my new book. We've got this core wisdom is about the knowing we hold within that helps us to better understand what our mind and bodies, mind and body are telling us, settle ourselves when we do feel stressed and activated release any of the negative energy coming up, but also helps us to use our voice and stand in our power. So starting to rely on your body is something you can do right now by way of breath work and just tuning in, like, where am I feeling tightness or tension? Why is that showing up? Or I'm feeling really tense in my shoulders. Like maybe I should like do some neck stretches to release the tension, which sounds like a bunch of hokey pokey stuff, but I am telling you right now, as someone who has literally transformed her life is what I'm sharing with you. It's these types of strategies that help us to live, work, and lead our best. And then the very last thing I'll say is let's remember that we live as for those of us in Canada and the U S in societies that are entrenched in these systems of sameness and conformity and homogeneity around largely male cisgender, hetero, white, affluent, elitist norms. And in these norms, these normatives, we are encouraged to not feel in our bodies. We are encouraged to think and be data-driven and to make decisions just on our minds as opposed to tuning into our bodies. And yet we know from all of the studies around happiness, leadership and effective decision-making, being intentional, relationship building, collaboration, inclusion, psychological safety, all of the key underpinnings of leadership, both individually and collectively. The being body focused is what causes us to be effective as a leader, both for ourselves and for others. And so I'm asking us, inviting us to disrupt all of the conditioning around us to go within. And that's pretty like radical out there because it, it flies in the face of what we've been taught historically. But this is a moment for change. And this is why I think my message is so important. Also, we've got this. Rithu Basin, thank you so much for being here today. Learned so much from you. And I think you're awesome. We're going to make sure everyone can follow you or have your links there when this podcast airs so people can find more about your wonderful work you're doing. And you're very welcome. Thanks for being here today on Motivational Mondays. Thank you so much. Bless. Be well, everyone. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.